With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I want to tell you my secret now. I see dead people. Silent green is people! No. I am the father. What's in the box? You maniac! You blew it up! Damn you all to hell! Hello and welcome to this late spoiler special podcast. Today we will be spoiling the new film from Bong Joon-ho, Parasite. I'm really excited to talk about this extremely twist-filled movie with Forrest Whitman, Slate's culture editor, who's here with me in Slate Studios in New York. Hey, hey Dana. Hi, Forrest. And talking to us from the East Bay is Slate culture writer Ingu Kang. Hi, Ingu. Hello, hello. All right. So, guys, this is kind of a major task to spoil Parasite for a few reasons. For one thing, I just feel like this is a really important movie. I really, really loved this movie. And I feel like maybe the first movie of this year since Us, since Jordan Peele's Us, that has not only haunted me for a couple weeks after seeing it, but that I, I can't stop talking about with everyone who's seen it. The minute you ask someone if they've seen Parasite, you launch into a conversation about it, um, which often, like the conversations about us did, you know, get into these uh, interpretive details and different ways of looking at the, the, the facts that are on the screen. So if any movie ever needed to be spoiled this year, besides us, I think it's, it's Parasite. And as per usual, I'm going to just go around and, and quickly get your responses. Forrest, I know you loved the movie, too. You're definitely a thumbs-upper. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think often with these spoiler specials, we try to get people who have differing uh, opinions on a movie. So there's some people who are pro and some people who are con. But there seems to be just no one at this point who is con on this movie. And I kind of don't expect there will be a lot of people. It's really, really great and also quite likable and fun and thrilling and and like us had its um, detractors, partly because it gets so far into a very sort of abstract and supernatural realm. And this movie manages to do so many of the same things, but in this really like this really grounded, concrete way. And I keep going back and forth about whether I think Parasite is vastly better or whether they're just like these two doppelganger movies in my head who, that are equally great. And yeah, doppelganger movies about doppelgangers. Exactly. It gets into a real mirror game. Ingu, what about you? Are you going to bring any shade to this love fest for Parasite? <laughs> um, I'm happy to bring shade for us, but uh, this movie is directed by uh, Bong Joon-ho, and he is, I don't know, like he's been one of my favorite directors for the last 10 years, I think. Um, ever since I saw The Host and Mother, which are two Korean movies that he made. Um, he's also made, uh, more recently, Stateside, or with sort of Hollywood actors, Snowpiercer and Okja. And this movie, for me, is in so many ways like a return to form and just like a perfect distillation of so many of the things that like Bong is truly excellent at. And so, yeah, sorry, like, you've got total unanimity here, just like a love fest for this movie. 
But even if we're not fighting each other about the movie's quality, I still feel like there's a lot of interesting roads to go down. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack. I, and I feel like we should also lay our credentials down. I think we're kind of all Bong Super fans here. I mean, I know that, Dana, you and I spoiled Snowpiercer back in the day, and I think you didn't like it quite as much. And I know Ingu, I think, doesn't like Snowpiercer quite as much. A lot of people don't like Snowpiercer quite as much, for example. I mean, both um, Snowpiercer and Okja are completely original. I mean, they're they're yeah, yeah. F- fantastic in that sense, is that they are completely true to his vision, right. and his vision is like no one else's. But I would say that this movie, I agree with Ingu, is, is sort of the... Uh, to me, it's the culmination. It kind of brings together sure. everything that was great about his earlier Korean movies with the scale, you know, the elaborate scale and just sort of gorgeous production of his, of his whatever you call them, international productions. Um, I, yeah, my favorite movie of his is probably this and The Host. But then there's also Memories of Murder, his, yeah. his, his early, uh, maybe not his first, maybe. but Second his, movie. Uh, which is which is also a fantastic kind of genre mashup the way that this one is. I mean, what this movie does with genre is so interesting, and we'll get into it as the conversation goes on. But, you know, usually when I'm writing about a movie in the first paragraph or two, I sort of in some way define what genre it is. Is it a thriller? Is it a drama? Is it a comedy? Or is it some mixture of two different genres? But this movie and Bong's in general goes so far beyond that classification uh, that they keep on changing what they are, right? I mean, this is really a Hitchcockian thriller that's also a social satire that is also a really touching family drama, but it's extremely funny. And it's somehow operating on all those registers at once. With like a weird element of like horror as well, um, which we'll get into. But yeah, I think like the really amazing thing about the way that Bong works with genre play is that you never like see the scenes. Um, he can really like play with these like, hairpins in tone and they just sort of seem like the most natural thing in the world as opposed to someone who was like striving really hard to like struggle putting together like horror and comedy for example yeah he's very very ambitious in that way and has a great deal of confidence i think i think of him as his camera is just is is its own kind of confident roving eye that knows what it wants you to look at even though you might not always know why you're looking at that particular thing at that moment. But I feel like we're being too vague. We need to get into the specifics of this story. So it roughly can be divided into three acts, that each of which has a big twist at the end, right? Um, so let's get into the first one. As we open the movie, we meet one of the two families that's going to be this doppelganger family, right? Two families of four that confront each other over the course of the movie. And the first family we meet is the Kims, who is this miserably poor family who live in a sub-basement in, in Seoul on a sort of run-down alleyway. And as we first meet them in this sub-basement, Ingo, you want to pick it up from there? What, what are they doing? I love the way that this movie begins because it starts with the four of them. So there's a mom and a dad, and then there's also an older brother and a younger sister. And essentially, the uh, two siblings are... I think they're supposed to be older teenagers and they are looking for a Wi-Fi signal that they can steal off of like whatever environment um, is sort of like around them. And there used to be like a cafe where they used to take all of their internet signal. And now like the cafe has like shut down or something. And so like, they're just sort of like roaming around their house looking for a signal because otherwise they don't have any phone service. You sort of like, see their house like in this way they're sort of like a giant window uh in the living room which initially sounds nice but it only looks onto the street and one of the things i really like about 
bong and his sense of humor is that it's like really quite earthy. Usually when they're looking outside this window, the family just like is sort of captivated by whether some drunkard on the street is going to like piss on their window because that's sort of like (laughs) where they are in society. And so basically we get sort of like a tour of a house and then they sort of like end up at like a bathroom and like only by sort of like leaning over the toilet in this like very specific way are they able to get any sort of signal. The production design of their apartment, which was built specifically for the movie, as was the rich family's house that we'll get to later, is just so fantastic. And one thing that's great about it is that toilet, which is just this Uh open elevated toilet that's like at at the top. You don't even quite see how you would fit onto it because it's just a few feet from the the ceiling of this low basement that they're in. And that in itself, I mean, just the way every detail in this movie means something and and, and has something to do with the, the thematic content. You know, obviously the idea that sort of the highest point in their apartment is this <laughs> is this open toilet is a, is a sort of testimony again to where they are in society. Right. I mean, we should unpack sort of one of the obvious more thematic aspects of this scene of them getting the Wi-Fi, which is that there's a lot of imagery in the movie that at first at least suggests that you know, they are parasites, right? And so in this case, they're literally leeching, you know, internet off of their neighbors. And then there's like a close-up of an insect in their apartment early on. And then they're constantly being, um, they're being fumigated, basically, right? Like the streets are being fumigated and it just comes into their apartment. So there's all these uh, images that suggest that that they're sort of insects preying on the neighborhood, which would be simplistic and maybe even sort of problematic if it weren't made much more complicated later on in the oh, movie. Oh yeah, the title gets pretty multivalent. Right. Um, so so the first plot point that matters to us is that the son finally gets a real job. The only work that we see the family doing early on is that they fold pizza boxes for this pizza delivery chain, which even that seems to be a job that they're always on the verge of losing because they can't fold them as fast and as efficiently as, as other workers. Yeah, it's very like 2019, both in the sense that it's like, I feel like uh, there's a lot of globalization in this movie. And so the fact that there are these people in Korea who are folding, you know, pizza boxes. And also it's like a total gig economy job where they can't get any like consistent salary or anything. And there's a real indignity to that scene where they interact with the very young manager for the pizza place, right? He's essentially telling them you can always be replaced. There are a million people in line behind you who can fold boxes better than you can. Um, And that will come up later when they get jobs where at least apparently, you know, they're slightly higher on the social ladder and treated with a bit more respect. But the son of the Kim family, who's played wonderfully by a young actor named Choi Woo-sik, eventually gets a real job. So his friend, who's about to go studying abroad for a year, recommends the son for for, for this job. Um, I think really interestingly, this friend who is in college because his family can't afford to send them to college, uh, comes over with this like gigantic rock uh, called a scholar stone. And basically, like the stone is placed in a very fancy like wooden box and brings it over as a gift. And uh, basically, the scholar stone is supposed to bring wealth onto the family, uh, <laughs> which is like both like very much a foreshadowing, but also like ironic, as we'll see. And so I think it's interesting also that this uh, wealthy friend who does get to go to college uh, is essentially in love with his two T and tells uh Choi Woo-shik's character, um, like, I trust you not to 
have any sort of like romantic entanglement with like my student. And there's sort of this implication that like, because his friends who he sort of like wants to have as like a placeholder uh, for his job is poor, isn't a viable sexual rival, um, which of course turns out to be a mistake. Right. So when Choi Woo-sik's character arrives at this uh, at the rich people's house, I feel like it's an important story beat when he does, because we're essentially transitioning to the second part of the movie in which the two families encounter each other. Forrest, do you want to describe the Park's house and uh, just what it looks like? I mean, basically, it's an extremely modern house. It's extremely spacious. It has um, its main feature are just huge windows, like huge floor to ceiling windows, which are used wonderfully throughout the movie. So I guess, you know, if you picture sort of like a Frank Lloyd Wright house, it's kind of like that. And it's supposed to have been designed by this famous Korean architect who was also its first owner. And he, in a way, I mean, even though we, he never appears in the movie, there's a portrait of him on the wall. Right. And uh, and he kind of becomes this, to me, sort of like class patriarch looming over the movie, right? What's, what's important to this family, the Parks, that lives in this house is not just money, but prestige, right? I mean, sort yeah. of education, social status, you know, mobility. And, uh, and the architect seems to represent all of that because he's this internationally renowned artistic figure. Right. And, you know, one of the ways in which everybody is constantly chasing prestige in this movie that really resonated with me as somebody who, you know, at one point after college, I taught English in Spain, and then I was going to teach English in Korea. And and if you ever spend any time on the forums for, um, like, English teaching assistants in Korea, they always talk about how the fact that you're American, and especially, frankly, at least according to all these people on the forums, like, if you're white and blonde and blue-eyed, like, you will get paid more. And that's something that keeps coming back in this, where they, like, take on American names and then, well, we should get into the chain of recommendations a little bit, as they call it. But one of them ends up faking being an American just to be more desirable. Or at least having studied. Does she say she's American? I think she, she says she grew in up in, a, in, well, I mean, same difference maybe, but I think she lies and claims that she grew up in the United States. Yeah. But I did just want to point out that, yeah, the house, just like the the underground apartment of the Kims, I mean, they're, they're really, those are the two main sets of the movie, although there's a few things that happen out in the world, yeah. a couple of really important things that happen out in the world. But those two sets are really important in their geography and their kind of spatial orientation, that window that they look out on, you know, the equivalent of the Kims, very murky window looking out onto a guy pissing on their building, right? I mean, it's, it's all just, there's almost a direct mirroring of, of every element of one apartment in the other. Right. For me, like the first uh, third of this movie plays out like a really delicious heist movie um it's just that like the thing that they're trying to gain or accrue is like social capital i think like what is really like fun about this movie is that you see that the poor family has like studied wealth essentially enough to like know how to devise like their own class desirability um, for the rich family in spite of, like, not really having any. And so uh, when the poor son sort of, like, comes in and, uh, like, knows exactly how to, like, feign a sort of authoritativeness mixed with, like, a bit of, like, artistic temperament in order to trick the wealthy mother um, who he's been told is, like, a little gullible um, a little, like, silly as a person. Uh, he basically knows, like, exactly how to play her. And so instead of sort of, like, doing, like, a straightforward lesson because the wealthy mother wants to sit in on, like, the first lesson, uh, he sort of, like, does this, like, very funny uh, 
act almost where he touches the student's pulse and sort of like diagnoses that like she responds to stress in like a certain way. And so it's not just the sort of like imparting of knowledge, but almost this idea that like uh, he has these like other powers that he's like able to impart to her to give her an advantage. And then uh, basically he finds out that the wealthy mother is convinced that her, I don't know, like eight year old son is a Picasso in the making uh, because she shows him this like very like kid like um, (laughs) painting that like she has on her wall. And the poor son sees this and basically passes off his sister as a renowned painter and uh, possible art therapist. And he's able to also like sell his sister off as a desirable addition to the household by saying, oh, well, she was educated in America. And she doesn't really take just any old clients off the street. Like the little boy has to be like worth her time. And so there are these ways that like, because uh, the poor family knows exactly what the rich family wants uh, out of like their help, um, because it's not just like labor that they're looking for. It's like a like labor plus that's sort of like combined with like prestige. Um, I think a lot of the fun of this like first half of the movie is them figuring out um, how to scam this rich family in exactly the way that they want to be scammed. Yeah, that especially comes into play when the sister, the sister of the the Kims, the poor family, comes to work for the parks because it's it's revealed all of a sudden that she, of all the shysters of the the family, is maybe the most skilled among them. In fact, I think it's her who upgrades from art tutor to art therapist, right? I think she goes in as an art tutor, and then when she sees all the scamming that's there for the taking, she is the one who says, oh, well, it looks like your son has gone through all this trauma. The mom seems convinced that her son is emotionally disturbed, although he just seems to be your your average sort of hyperactive kid. And uh, and the sister uses that to worm her way in and say, oh, well, actually, if you're willing to pay an even more pretty penny, I can work as an art therapist as well. And also your son needs to see me like four times a week. Right. So she is the one who sort of ups, ups the ante and uh, and also finds her way clear to getting her dad hired. And the way she does that is, is one of the funniest um, stretches of the, the early part, which I agree. It has the fun of a heist movie. There's almost like an Ocean's Eleven energy to that period of the movie when the family is starting to infiltrate. Remember how she gets how she gets her dad the job as the family's driver? Right. Well, I should say it's been like two months since I've seen this movie. So I'm a little fuzzy on some of the stuff. But basically, she like drops her panties in the car, right? And when getting then, a ride home from the driver, right? Yeah. And then implies that he was a creep and came on to her, I think. Right. The implication is that he was having sex with somebody else in like the family's like car where like the rich father gets like taken back, like to his job and back from it. And so essentially the wealthy family was really into this idea of having like a young hip driver. But once it's clear that like he is not as discreet as he should be or so like the rich family is uh, made to believe, then he's fired. And then the father of like the poor family is uh, then installed as like the driver. Um, And then uh, the final piece of the puzzle is there's been sort of like a loyal servant uh, that sort of like almost came with the mansion. It's this sort of middle-aged woman in like a gray uniform who knows exactly how a sort of like servant to 
very wealthy people is supposed to behave. And uh, she had been the servant of the architect when he lived in the house. Now, like the wealthy family employs her and they essentially don't have any complaints about her, except for the fact that maybe she like eats a little too much of their food, which seemed like very hilarious to me because like, of course, this like very wealthy family would begrudge their living housekeeper like $3 a week or whatever. <laughs> through like a very elaborate scheme convince the wealthy family that their housekeeper has tuberculosis um, by triggering the housekeeper's like a very rare, very extreme peach allergy. And so when they sort of pass off like a napkin filled with like a very like visceral looking uh, hot sauce for blood, then uh, the housekeeper is sent away and the mom of the poor family is installed. So like by the end of like that first third of the movie, they have every single one of like the poor family working for the rich family and the rich family has no idea that they are all related um, <laughs> and also that they are slowly sort of have grown like entirely dependent on this family in order to uh, provide for their own family. I just have to jump in and say that the editing of that sequence, the montage uh, with, uh -huh. with the peach fuzz and making her cough, and then, you know, at the very last moment, putting the hot sauce on the napkin is just fantastic. It's one of those moments when comedy and suspense come together just perfectly in this movie. Yeah, I mean, he's a total master of that stuff, and he also is extremely good. I mean, we were talking a little bit about the way he bends genre, and he's extremely good at making genuinely really suspenseful s sequences out of extremely silly heist concepts. So in this case, we have this like peach allergy and the fake hot sauce blood and so on. And then later, there's this whole Hitchcockian like ticking clock sequence, except for instead of there being, you know, a bomb that's about to go off, it's just that the housekeeper needs to make a particular noodle dish that the son loves in time in the eight minutes before the son comes home. And it's it's like genuinely really suspenseful and, and hilarious that it's a noodle dish. Yeah. Well, that And that moment, I would say, is kind of the pivot, that great, great scene or sequence, really, the long right. set of scenes where um, the rich family go out camping, the poor family essentially move into their house for the weekend and are just partying down in their living room. And then that turns into, wait, the rich family's coming back and they want this particular dish and they want it in eight minutes and you know meanwhile the entire house is just covered in liquor and you know snacks and everybody has to hide that's another of those moments where um there's an enormous amount of plot turns being packed into a very short period of time and just the editing of the of that scene is is really brilliant and, and very slapsticky in the end right i mean all of the hiding under tables and having to crawl out at just the right moment it's just one of those moments where slapstick comes into play in a beautiful way Ingo, do you have any thoughts about that, I think, pivotal sequence of the, the Kims partying down at the Parks house? I love that scene because, like, by this sort of, like, midway point of the movie, uh, they've basically completed their heist. And you're sort of left wondering, like, well, what's left? And so the poor family, while the rich family has gone camping, and I have to say, like, the camping detail is perfect because it's all about, like, wealthy people who have decided to voluntarily spend tons of money to sort of act for a weekend like they don't actually have any resources um they while like the rich family is out camping the poor family are like basically like in their living room like eating all of the food drinking all of the liquor and sort of daydreaming 
to one another about what it might be like if the son actually did end up marrying like his student and this gigantic mansion would become their own house and of course that's right when everything sort of like begins to fall apart for them Right. And it's also the moment that the movie does one of these hairpin tone shifts that we were talking about early in the podcast for us. You want to talk about the big twist in that scene? Right. So the big twist in this movie is that it, it, you know, whereas us had like one set of doppelgangers, this movie has a whole nother set of doppelgangers. So in addition to this rich family and the poor family who lives in the sub-basement apartment, there is also a whole nother family that lives underneath the Parks house um, in this bunker. And basically the way we learn that is that the housekeeper comes back. And then basically I mainly remember a long shot of a camera sort of plunging deeper and deeper into the house and writing like holy shit in big letters <laughs> in my notes. <laughs> yeah, you're right. I mean, it's a moment when it's revealed that as low as the Kims are on the social ladder, there right. are people that are even beneath them. And that's the moment that you start to see, oh, this isn't the simple class satire that we thought it was about, you know, the rich versus the poor. It is yeah. actually about systemic poverty and, you know, the way that there's always somebody below you on the ladder. So, yeah, the old housekeeper shows up in the middle of their wild partying night and uh, insists on getting in, seems very desperate to go and retrieve something. And that's when we discover, because she shoves this shelf aside in the kitchen, that there's an entire secret subterranean floor that neither we nor the parks themselves who own the house seem to know about. Yeah, I mean, and thematically, it's it's rich in the way that uh, you suggested, Dana, and that I'm sure we're going to talk about more. And also, it's just, we should say, it's really well set up. Like, this movie is extremely tightly and intricately plotted. An example of this is, Ingu, you were talking earlier about how the parks, the one thing they don't like about this housekeeper is that she supposedly eats too much. And then we basically eventually realize it's no, that she's just been sneaking food down to, to her husband who lives in this bunker in the basement. At one point, like, she does get accused of sneaking food down into this bunker. And she says, like, no, I pay for all of the food myself and took uh, a great deal of pride in it. The reason why this bunker exists in the first place it's because uh, she explains that the architect basically made this like nuclear bunker in case there is an, in case there is an attack by North Korea um, and so you have this like extremely sturdy bunker where that is like sort of like reserved for like only like the wealthiest of the wealthy to like even um, get to afford in Seoul. Uh, at the very beginning of this podcast, we had mentioned that like the poor family had been getting uh, Wi-Fi from a cafe. And it turns out that like that husband had been the owner of the cafe. And when the cafe folded, uh, he was basically chased by loan sharks. And he knew that like he would never be able to repay that money. And therefore, he has been hiding out like in this bunker for the last four years. Okay, that's great. Wow, no, I, I did not put together I, that I didn't, cafe I didn't get thing. the cafe detail either, and not at all the first time. And I remember thinking that detail was so smart because it contrasts sort of like the uh, like casual cosmopolitanism of like the rich family uh, versus sort of like this other kind of like middle class striving level of cosmopolitanism that like they try to reach and like can't quite grasp, which is like, of course, represented by the failure of that Taiwanese cafe. 
Right. So there's two things I want to get to here. I mean, the first, the, the next big plot beat is that the old housekeeper manages to film them basically talking to each other like family members on her phone, I believe it is. And then she, it leads to this great, um, it's sort of like the noodle scene that we were talking about before, this great standoff scene where it's almost like your classic, you know, hostage situation or quote unquote Mexican standoff scene in an action movie, except for all of the suspense revolves around her wielding her phone like it's a gun. And she's and, ready to text the she, evidence at any time to blackmail the family. Right. She she says, at least as the sub- subtitles put it, stop right there or I'll push the send button, which is, you know, it's instead of stop right there, or I'll shoot. It's just like, I'm going to send this text message. You really feel the great cost of what the what we've come to think of as like the poor family when uh, they decide to essentially... Uh, beat up the bunker couple and like lock them inside the bunker, uh, presumably to starve to death. And before we leave this this scene where the um you know I would call it sort of the turning of the movie where the the bunker people are discovered, it's worth mentioning that while the rich woman Mrs. Park is eating this special noodle dish that she demanded be prepared in eight minutes before her arrival, uh, she's telling the housekeeper, the mother of the Kim family the story of her son's traumatization and how he remembers seeing this ghost in the house and how that's turned him into this disturbed little kid that she now thinks he is. And as she tells that story, we see a flashback. And of course, what he was really seeing was a face peering up out of the bunker, the husband of the housekeeper who nobody knew was down there. It is Ryan here. And I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. So there's, there's two things that we have to discuss before we get to the climactic birthday scene, which, uh, our first, um, you know, when the parks come back, we get this scene that I think is kind of a microcosm of the whole movie where um, the Mr. Kim, who I don't know if we said on here, he's played by Song Kang-ho, um, Who's who is a long Bong's time big muses. Yeah. Right, Bong, long-time Bong collaborator. Also just like a very uh, famous and accomplished actor in Korea. But specifically with Bong, he's made Memories of Murder and um, the host... And he's also in Snowpiercer. Snowpiercer. He's one of the few um, Korean characters uh, in that movie, which has like an extremely international cast. I guess it's mostly American and British. But um, so anyway, the Mr. Kim in this scene that's kind of a microcosm of the movie gets stuck under this table. So he's again kind of like underneath, whereas the parks are just like lounging on the couch watching their son play, you know, kind of cowboys and Indians where he's going to sleep in his teepee in the yard. And like they start having sex and he has to just kind of sit there and listen to it. I think, is it also during this scene where they also start to talk about how, they keep saying that like poor people have a particular smell. Yeah, and that becomes really important later yes, on. Right. I so mean, that's that, that is a, is kind of an emotional crux of the movie. I feel like because it's a moment when you realize the humiliation that the father, the Song Kang Ho character, feels. You know, every moment of his job. I mean, he's been treated pretty well by the guy that he drives for, and he's managed also to get into this family scam of sort of I'm this very loyal employee, and I'm this top VIP driver, and you know, he's made up this firm that he supposedly works for, and. Uh, 
But it's a moment when it really comes down to brass tacks. And the guy he works for is talking about how he smells like basement mildew, basically. And the sting that that causes in him is something that's going to come up later in the big climactic finale. Right. It's one of many reminders in this movie that, like, there's this idea that basically no matter what these people do and how hard they work, they're never really going to be, you know, climb up the, the ladder of society. And so the other thing is the flood. I mean, I just I, I have to just admire the filmmaking of the flood. All there really is to say about the flood is, I mean, I was talking about how this is a movie about two interiors, the basement apartment and the gorgeous architect house. But then we suddenly get this exterior scene. It's almost like the movie's two biggest set pieces, you know, the party sequence at the at the architect's house and this flood sequence come right back to back. And it's just one of those moments where literally Bong is pulling out the stops. You know, he built an entire set. I heard Bong talking about this after the screening I saw, and he apparently built an entire set in a water tank. That whole alley that they live in is just a built set so that he could flood it completely with this sewage water. And it's this combination, again, of kind of like earthy, scatological comedy, right? They're kind of swimming in shit, literally, and uh, and just high-action thriller drama. So um, the the... Kim's apartment is completely flooded. The only thing that they managed to salvage that we see is the scholar's stone that Ingu was talking about, which seems really important to the boy who's gotten it from his friend. He takes it and hugs it to his chest and removes it from the apartment. It's very metaphorical. <laughs> As everyone in this movie is always pointing out. I can't remember Can if the stone is one joke? of the things they say that about. But No, the, the stone totally is. I mean, part of the joke with the stone, right, is just that it's so completely useless to this poor family who just needs, like, material comfort and Wi-Fi and so on and then this one person who's managed to gain a few advantages just give them gives them like a big rock that's supposed to have like either figurative or supernatural significance and it's I mean like, it's more no than useless as we'll get to I mean it's it's well, actively it's harmful it's, to them as the yes. movie goes on but it is one of the things he salvages from the apartment and uh, anyway I mean all there is to say about that flood piece I think is just that it's a kind of magnificent piece of filmmaking that also again as every scene in this movie seems to do underlines those those same themes of social stratification and the kind of hopelessness of, of the life that they're living so right after they've just had this luxurious fantasy that they're going to move into the architect's yeah. house and marry into that family etc they find themselves just trying to salvage a couple of things from their house in this sea of sewage yeah and so they kind of reach their low point and then there's a sort of twist of the knife where you know it, it's like this whole sequence about how shit like literally rolls downhill and then later we get this sequence of the parks talking about it they just say that rain was a blessing because to them it just like cleared up all the pollution and where they live up on this nice you know hill apparently in this nice house like it was it was just a cleansing rain whereas right. it made their n- nice lives just a little bit nicer right. there's also a, a kind of an incredible scene of the Kims pulling themselves together out of nothing the next morning because they're sleeping in this huge gymnasium where the whole neighborhood has been relocated after the flood. They get a call from the parks the next morning saying, oh, guess what? We've decided to throw a surprise birthday party for our son, and we're going to need all of you, our employees, here in fancy clothes at this particular time of day. And, uh, you know, so the, the, the Kims really have to pull it together by just going through the the goodwill table at this at this emergency shelter and kind of trying to make themselves look like the VIP employees that they've been pretending to be. And by the way, it's Sunday. And also, can you get here in like the next two hours? So we get a montage of this party being put together in the yard by the hired labor that is the Kim family. And then we get this great birthday party climax scene where all three of the families, including the subterranean one, are going to converge in this maelstrom of violence. 
So when we last saw the bunker couple, um, essentially they were so injured that uh, the woman who had been the housekeeper had had a concussion, and then she eventually sort of like dies. Um, very she dies off thereafter. screen, right? We never see her die. I think, which is a really sad part of the movie. I think that her 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 death happens off screen. And the bunker uh, man had basically been tied to a pipe or something um, in the basement. He has loosened himself and is basically coming up uh, from the basement, from the bunker, in order to get his revenge. In the four years that he's been trapped down there, he has sort of like gained this like weird loyalty to the wealthy family. And so the only uh, people that he really wants to target is the poor family. And they are sort of like in different uh, costumes, essentially, like partly as like the help and uh, the father, the chauffeur is dressed as a Native American because there's this like long running theme of um, the wealthy boy. Uh, being obsessed with uh, what he would call Indians and essentially uh, having like this like weird whim catered to. Um, and then there's like a whole scene where uh, the art tutor, uh, the girl from the poor family is supposed to be attacked by Indians and the little boy is supposed to like come rescue her. And so we're, there's already sort of this like staging of pretend violence and then uh, the guy from the bunker comes uh, out and essentially sort of like starts to wreak his vengeance, which is quite haphazard, I think is like a good word for it. Um, like the son from this poor family ends up sort of unconscious in the kitchen very quickly because of him. And not just unconscious, but we assume dead, right? I mean, lying in a pool of blood because he's been struck by, metaphorically enough, the scholar stone that he now is carrying around with him as this kind of talisman. Yeah. And then he, uh, I think, stabs the uh, girl in the poor family. And, like, all of this, like, crazy uh, trauma that's happening, it gives the little boy a seizure. And so the only thing that, like, the wealthy father wants to do is take his son to the hospital. The father of the poor family is sort of paralyzed because he still wants to keep up the appearance of being like the chauffeur, but he also needs to attend to uh, his bleeding daughter. And so that's sort of like at the point at which the scam like completely comes loose the mother of the poor family and the bunker guy sort of like end up in a big tussle on the floor and because the mother had sort of been this i guess like professional athlete in her previous life uh ends up killing the bunker guy with the, and, via shish kebab uh, right doesn't she stab him with a shish kebab that's got like a bunch of food and sausage on it and stuff i think that's right well, I'm just, just pointing out pointing that out because, once again, that scene is horribly gruesome and sad, but also brings in a lot of comedy and action elements. Yeah, I mean, it's like yeah. a, it's it's staged in this very, like, kind of North by Northwest kind of way in which it's it's this really gruesome, bloody scene. But it's also a birthday party and it's, like, extremely sunny. Like, it's the most brightly lit scene in the movie by far, I feel like. Um, so it has a lot of fun with that. 
Right. Contrast. It also has the kind of dramatic irony of a, of a Hitchcock scene where for a long time we know what's happening and the party goers don't. And there's right. actually a shot where all the party goers are looking in one direction, right, because it's the lighting of the birthday candles, I think. And uh, and only we know that this, you know, underground bunker, long bunker bound crazed killer is coming up behind them with a knife. Right. Well, and specifically what triggers the seizure from the boy, I think, is that, you know, it's not just that he like sees this guy come up, but for him, it's, it's the, the ghost. ghost who lives yeah. in the basement and like... He's trying to have his trauma recovery cake and recover from his ruined birthday party, but instead the like monster from the basement appears, and so he, he you know, he starts losing it. Um, and yeah, so Mr. Kim has, is given this terrible choice between, you know, driving his boss and like stopping his daughter from bleeding out. And I think what he does is hand over the car keys, right? And like, there's a sense where that there's a sort of false cadence where we think things are starting to resolve, but it's then I believe that um, Mr. Park, the sort of rich dad like just can't deal with the smell of these people who have uh, been in sewage all night or whatever. And uh, Mr. Kim picks up on that and finally just like loses it and stabs him, right? Yeah. And that's exactly the motivation for it. Yep. Just that that little sniff. And that's one of those examples of, you know, a seed that was planted earlier, just paying off in this immensely satisfying and also horrifying way. All right. Even just contemplating that scene makes me want to run back and see see Parasite again and see how it all stacks up together. But we should get to the coda of the movie, which is, I mean, it's really more than a coda. It's almost like a, a final uh, act where all these various denouements happen. We jump ahead in time. We don't know exactly how much, but we suddenly also for the first time get a voiceover. There hasn't been any use of voiceover previously in the movie, but suddenly we hear the boy's voice, the Kim's son, Choi Wushik, uh, telling us what the unraveling of all of this was uh, in the courts and legally and sort of where, where how they got to be where they are at at the at the end of the movie. So one of the things that happens is that the entire family's scheme gets unraveled and uh, the mother and son have to spend some time in jail. All we know at that point is what the mother and son know, which is that the father had disappeared immediately after the stabbing incidents at the party and is now the object of this national manhunt that we hear about on TV. Um, The whereabouts of the daughter we learn in this very sad way when we see the mother and son, once their prison term for fraud has been served, going to visit her grave, her kind of mausoleum site. And uh, and you realize that she bled to death at the party and that the family is completely torn apart because of that. They're back living in the basement again, completely poor, and they don't know where the father is and have heard nothing from him. So the big dramatic twist of the last part of the movie is to is for the son to discover where his father is. And so essentially, um, he sort of like returns uh, to, well, no, he goes to uh, the woods where he can sort of get like a view of the house from quite afar. And he sees this light flickering. And he had sort of known that there was a way in which the bunker man, when he had been alive, had been using Morse code in order to communicate with the little boy. Basically, the little boy wasn't really sure what was happening. But um, the bunker man in his loneliness was sort of uh, using that Morse code uh, to flick on lights in the house, like from the basement. And so when uh, the son notices that there is also uh, a continuous flickering of light, he figures out that his father is in the bunker. And then we get this like very dreamy scene where 
um, throughout the movie, the son had been saying, like, I'm finally going to, like, buckle down, figure out some way to go to college, and I'm going to get married, and I'm going to do everything the right way, and I'm going to become wealthy beyond imagination, and I'm going to buy that house, and I'm going to reunite with my father, and, like, my whole family can come together again. Right, and there's this great fantasy scene of all of them meeting again on the lawn of the house. Right. Well, and we don't. Yes. I think that we're not really supposed to know it's a fantasy, right? Like there's, it's just be, it's just being shown to us. And there was a a moment in my head where I was briefly like, oh no, this movie better not fuck this up and just like have him <laughs> in the end grow up to buy this house and free his dad, which is totally how this movie would end in if it was made by pretty much any American studio. Yeah, which is hard to but, imagine in the first place, <laughs> such a movie ever being undertaken. Sure, although, you know, we had us, right? Like, it's not entirely out of the question, but... Yeah, but I, to me, that was clear it was it was a fantasy. So, like, once you realize that this entire thing has been a fantasy sequence, and it's just, like, one more layer of, like, the sun, or sort of like this wealthy family, constantly dreaming that one day they will be rich, you realize that, like, the class difference between them and, like, whoever might live in that mansion is so vast that there's just, like, no way of, like, ever uh, reaching that level of wealth, which means that, like, the sun... Uh, and, like, his mother will never be able to reunite with, like, the, his father ever again. And so right. that's sort of, like, where you are left with at the end of the movie. Right. Isn't the final shot just the son back in the depressing sub-basement apartment? Like, yeah. I feel like they show his whole fantasy of upward mobility. And if he just pulls himself up by his bootstraps, he'll save his dad and buy this house. And they'll all live happily ever after. And then there's just, like, a cut back to him alone in his depressing apartment yeah, I think and then it's, it ends and it's so it's just such a perfect ending i mean and as an american watching it i think it's natural to like it's basically like they're showing what we would think of as the american dream and then the final reveal is like nope that's all it is just a dream it's like an illusion and then the movie ends and i think it's even more than a cut back to the basement apartment it's a downward tilt right i mean it's one of those moments again where every camera movement that, that bong uses signifies something and i think the very last thing you see is similar to the first movement you see the camera do sort of going down from street level into the semi-basement apartment that he still lives in where he's, you know, dictating this letter to his father that will never be, as far as we can imagine, yeah. read or heard. So, yeah, I mean, whatever brief moment of respite you got from that fantasy sequence is is really undercut by that brutal final shot. I think there's a lot of ways that, like, analyzing a movie can sort of, like, I don't know, like, depress your, in, your enjoyment of it. And I think that, like, with this conversation, the more we sort of pick it apart and identify, like, all of the different elements that contribute toward this, like, magical film, um, <laughs> uh, I've really grown to appreciate it even more. I hope that was the same for you guys. Yeah, it made I mean, me want to see it more. I mean, this is one of those movies that the minute it ended, I wanted it to start rolling again so I could just see the, how the whole thing was put together because it's very, I mean, to make a, a joke very much in the movie spirit, it's architectural. You know, it's really built from the ground up in this very elaborate way. And so even our, our talking through it, even though we've all seen it fairly recently, I mean, it's really hard to remember how all these moving parts fit together. And this conversation made me want to run back to the theater and re-see it to think about it some more. Yeah, I mean, the, we keep talking about how every camera movement means something, and that's not a coincidence. Like, Bong has talked about how he's very deliberate in storyboarding out every single 
camera movement in his movies, um, like every every frame. Uh, and I can't wait to see it again. I'm also like, it's I'm a little bit frustrated that it's a, hard to see again right now because it's selling out constantly. Even this past weekend, the 9.30 a.m. showings uh, in New York were sold out. Um, but it's also really fun that this movie that is as accessible as it is, it is a movie um, that's in Korean with subtitles and has no major movie stars. And yet it's still um, doing quite well so far. And I hope it continues to do well. And I hope it wins all of the awards. Extremely gratifying. Yeah, that it had as big an opening as it did as a as an opener just in the big coastal cities. And yeah. now as it starts to open wider across the country in the fall, I think it's going to be one of those movies that has a really long tail and that people are still talking about for the rest of the year and that hopefully will get some awards recognition. Although, as you say, with a subtitled movie from Korea, it's not necessarily that obvious that it will. Oh, right. Although I think the hope is that it'll succeed on the Roma model, right? Like Roma was a subtitled uh, movie with no major movie stars, and yet it managed to uh, get itself a Best Picture nomination and to, to be a real contender. And so I, I hope that's what happens with this movie. And I think we've shown it certainly like it holds up to the scrutiny of being discussed for hours or months. Or yeah, whatever. it's one of those movies that's satisfyingly smarter than you are, you know, that when yeah. you think it, it, you have it figured out, it always stays a step ahead and does something unexpected. Okay. Our love fest is coming to an end. Thank you, Forrest and Ingu, for coming in to Spoil Parasite. Thanks, Dana. Thank you for having me. All right. Our engineer today was Merritt Jacob. Our producer is Rosemary Belson. If you have ideas for future shows or movies you would like us to spoil, you can always write us at spoilers at slate.com. And for Forrest Wickman and Ingu Kang, this is Dana Stevens. We'll talk to you soon. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply.